So as we have worked our way through 1 Peter, this is now our 14th week in this letter, we said at the very beginning, there were kind of five big themes to look for, five big topics and ideas that we were going to see come up over and over as we went through this letter. One of them was the work of God on behalf of His people, what I was just talking about a moment ago, that that God has worked on our behalf, and we are in Christ if we are a believer because of the work that God has done for us. That was one of the themes. And then theme two and three comes off of that, that in light of who you are as a Christ follower, Peter talks about how you should live, how you should pursue holiness, and how the church should live in this fallen world because of what God has done for us. And then the fourth big theme that we've looked for is God's sovereignty. His sovereignty over everything, that He cares and provides for all people that He has called, and He provides in some ways for all people on the earth, and He exerts control over all human history. And then fifth, the fifth theme is the one that Peter is going to now really begin to focus on, because he's introduced it already, but now there's going to be a focus on it over This next part of the letter, all the way through chapter 4, for us, the next four or five weeks, and that is, he makes an appeal to believers who are suffering. And their suffering is primarily because of persecution as a Christian, because they follow Jesus. So this morning, I want to start with verse 17 that Scott read. This is, to me, kind of a summary of of this section of Peter's letter. Verse 17. Church, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good if God wills that than it is for suffering for doing evil. And so if you're a note taker, if you have one of the handouts, we're going to start with this life truth this morning. There may be two causes of suffering in your life. The first cause is that you commit sinful acts. The second cause is that you commit godly acts. Two causes of suffering. One, that you commit sinful acts. The second, that you commit godly acts. All suffering is painful, but only one of these two types of suffering is promised to be profitable for you. Only one is promised to be good for you. Now, let me say a couple of things about this. Number one, this is not a holistic teaching on suffering. And so what I mean by that is there are other reasons that we suffer in life other than just our sinful acts, or our godly acts. For example, sometimes we suffer because of someone else's sin. So we're not looking at every reason that we might suffer, but we're looking at two reasons that Peter focuses on in this section of his letter. And the second thing that I want to say to you is when I, when I make the statement in this life truth that all suffering is painful, but only one is promised to be profitable for you. I don't mean that God cannot or does not raise blessings out of your sin. Because the reality is, sometimes God does that. He blows our mind by using some sinful act that we have done and bringing some type of blessing out of it. 
But what I am saying to us is that we are not to impose upon God's grace. We are not to willfully sin because God can and does bring blessings out of all types of actions. We are to heed God's warning. And when God tells us that we should not sin and there are there may be suffering because of it, we need to listen to that. But what we're focused on this morning is two causes of suffering. First, that you might commit sinful acts, and the other, that you might commit godly acts. So let's start with suffering because of evil. In your outline, this very simple statement but profound truth is sin causes harm. This is implied in verse 13, what Scott started reading to us today, in this question that Peter poses. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Implied in that question is that harm is not the expected consequence of doing good. That if you are living to do good things, the expected consequence of that is not harm. But also implied there is that the expected outcome of not being zealous for good, rather for doing evil, the expected outcome of that would be harm. One way of life you would not expect to be harmed, the other way of life you would and should expect harm. And that is even more clear in verse 17, where very clearly Peter ties doing evil to suffering. It's better if God allows it for you to suffer because you're doing good than to suffer because you do evil. Because if you do evil, you will suffer because there is harm in sin. I want to remind you something. Peter is not writing to lost people. Lost people may be reading this letter, both in the first century and today, but his audience was Christians. His audience was the church. And he is telling the church that if you do evil, you will suffer. That brings us to this next part of the outline, that the glorious truths of justification and sanctification, I'll explain those terms in a moment, the glorious truths of justification and sanctification do not negate the reality that our sin has consequences for us and for others. The glorious realities of justification and sanctification do not negate the reality that our sin has consequences for us and others. Justification is something that Josh, when he's preaching, talks about a lot. It is so important to understand that when you are saved, when you become a Christ follower, you are justified. And what that means is you are declared not guilty of your sins. It's a legal term. In that moment, when you come to know Jesus and God saves you, you are born again. In that moment, you are transferred spiritually from darkness to light, and you are declared eternally not guilty of your sins. Every sin that you've committed and every sin you will 
ever commit, you are justified before Him. You do not work to earn His favor. You do not work to earn your salvation. You do not work to earn His love. You are not guilty. And that is good news. And then there's sanctification. Sanctification is what God does in your life after He's justified you. After He's declared you not guilty, God doesn't leave you alone and say, okay, now go live your life, I'll see you in heaven. No, He makes His home with you in your heart and He begins the process of making you like Jesus. Of you becoming holy, like Christ is. And that is called sanctification. And those are wonderful, glorious truths. But sometimes what happens is because we know we've been declared not guilty and we know that God is working to make us holy, we sometimes think, my sin doesn't really matter. I've been forgiven. God is in the process of making me more like Jesus, so sin is not a big deal. And the Bible screams at The church, sin, is a very big deal. For the believer, for those who have been justified, your sin will not undo your eternal life in Christ. But your sin can bring you great harm on the earth. And it can bring great harm to others. When you willfully sin and you don't practice daily confession and repentance. We're all going to sin. But when you know you're sinning and you don't repent and you don't try to turn from that sin. And you don't confess and you don't pray and you don't get in God's word and you don't join in community to have people helping you. You are doing harm to yourself. And you're doing harm to others, period. The reality is you may not see that harm right away. You know, we're a little trained as people to, someone says, that's hot. And we go, really? That doesn't burn that bad. That's okay. See, we can get lulled to sleep thinking that God is not doing anything. And therefore, we must have His approval. He's not stopping me. Life's going good. I'm being blessed. How do you think so many church leaders and pastors, you find out, have fallen into sin for multiple years and no one ever knew, ever knew about it? And you think about that pastor and you think, how did they week after week and month after month get up and preach God's Word yet live that lifestyle? And I think part of the reason is because in God's grace, their church was being blessed. Their church was growing. God was moving. And so the thought was, he must not be that mad at me. See, we confuse living in God's approval with what actually is happening, which is we're living in God's patience. And sometimes we're testing God's patience. Sometimes we're testing His patience over and over because we're refusing to repent and confess. Unchecked sin is always destructive. Always. It doesn't matter how secretive it is. One pastor said one time, getting caught in secret sin is horrible. 
there's only one thing worse. Never getting caught. Because it does us harm. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that if it's in secret, it will avoid consequence. And that's not true. I don't get this a lot around here. But it is funny sometimes when I'm I'm out, I'm around family or friends, and they act a little different because I'm a pastor. We sometimes we do that. We think, I need to straighten up because the people that I care about or the people that hold me accountable, they're around. And yet we forget that the one we're ultimately accountable for is always with us. He sees everything we're doing. He knows everything we're thinking. There's no sense in trying to hide because he sees all the secrets of our heart. Unchecked sin is always destructive, no matter how secretive, no matter how hidden. God brought this to my mind as I was studying, but I think one of the An example of a hidden sin, an example of a sin that maybe nobody would know about is bitterness. You can be bitter toward someone, bitter toward a situation, bitter toward God. You can hide that pretty well sometimes. And Hebrews 12, 15, though, tells us that bitterness causes trouble and it springs up and defiles many. Which means no matter how hidden our sin may be, it is still causing trouble. And what I want us to know this morning is this type of suffering is not inevitable. We don't have to suffer because of sin. That's why God has given us confession and repentance. In your outline, in general, in general, if you are eager to live like Jesus, which I believe is as a blessing to others, then you will avoid much suffering. If you are eager, zealous, as Peter put it, to live like Jesus as a blessing to as many people as you can, what Josh preached about last week, living your life just thinking about how can I bless someone, then you will avoid much suffering. And I'll say that in two ways. First of all, holiness itself dispels much suffering. Tell the truth. Live lives of purity. Don't slander. Don't gossip. Be faithful to your spouse. Be kind to your children. Honor your parents. Obey laws that are not contrary to God. Much suffering is avoided by us just doing those things. We save ourselves a lot of trouble by being holy. That's not the ultimate reason we live lives of holiness. But it is definitely a benefit of it. But secondly, I think from Peter's words in verse 13, Peter anticipates that it is actually going to be a little unusual to suffer when you are zealous for good. He asked that question. Now, who is there to harm you if... You are zealous for what is good. Immediately, I think, you may do what I do, and that's argue with that sentence. There's a lot of people. (laughs) There's a lot of things. There's a lot of people that would harm me for doing good. But I think what Peter is showing, what he's saying is, but that's unusual. That is not the typical way 
And maybe it will increase as we get closer to the end. But Peter's anticipation is that because of the common grace of God over all people, that those who live zealous for what is good, and by the way, I immediately tie that back to what Josh was talking about last week. Immediately what he had said in verse 10, what Peter said, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. And even right before that in verse 9, he'd said, don't repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless for this to this you have been called. I think that type of life where you are zealous to do as much good as you can and bless as many people as you can, even your enemies, it will be an unusual thing for you to be harmed because of that. One of the most disarming things you can do to someone who hates you is be kind to them. Love them. Show them grace. It is not what we want to do. But it is one of the most disarming things that we can do. When you're zealous for what is good, in general, you shouldn't expect evil in return. Especially considering that God's favor is on those who want to love and live like Jesus. In verse 12 from last week, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. When you decide you want to live a life to just bless as many people as I can, that is a precious life in God's sight, because it's like Jesus. So, some suffering comes because of sin, and I think Peter is saying, church, be eager to live like Jesus did. Bless others. Keep a good conscience before God. Live good behavior out in Christ. And if you will do that, much suffering will be avoided. Much suffering. But not all suffering. Not all suffering will be avoided by that. There is some suffering because of our piety. And that's what Peter says next in verse 14. But even if, even if that does happen, it shouldn't. For the most part, when you do good, you should be praised. When you do evil, you should be punished. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, that means it's not the usual result, but it will happen. Sometimes you will suffer because you're trying to be righteous. Sometimes you will suffer because you're trying to be like Jesus. In your outline, there are times that your dedication to Jesus will result in persecution. There are times when your dedication to Jesus will result in persecution. When I say dedication to Jesus, by the way, what I am thinking there is you are dedicated to the model of life that Jesus showed us. I want to live as much like Jesus as I can. And you are dedicated to all of His words. Everything that he has written, everything in the Bible, you're dedicated to that. And sometimes when you are dedicated to those things, it will result in persecution. I think it's really, really important for us to note that he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
We need to know this is not persecution that comes because of your political leanings. This is not persecution that comes because your boss is a jerk to everyone around him. This is not persecution that comes because everybody in your life seems to be having an easier time than you are. This is persecution that comes because of piety, which is a word that means, in my definition, that you have made it your aim to position your life totally toward God. I want everything in my life to be about God. I don't want him to just be a part of my life or a segment of my life, a little piece of my life. I want my whole frame of life to be toward God. Everything that I have to do every day, if I have the purpose of raising children, of nurturing them in a home, if I'm working in a school, if I'm in an office, if I'm at a business, if I'm going to school, if I'm married, if I'm single, whatever my life looks like in this season and every season, I want it to ultimately be about God. I want my life to point toward Him. That's piety. And Peter is saying, sometimes you will be persecuted because you have made it your aim to live for God. This is when you lose your job because of your faith. Because God has told you to do one thing and your company says to do something else. And God very clearly tells you, this is what I want you to do. And you do it and you lose your job over it. This is when you are slandered by others because of your faith. This is when you're taken advantage of because of your faith. This is when you're estranged from your family because of your faith. This is when you're put in jail because of your faith. Even if that happens. Peter goes on to give us two encouragements and two commands in regards to this idea of suffering for the sake of righteousness. So in your outline, first of all, two encouragements to those who are suffering for doing good. Two encouragements to those who are suffering for doing good. Either right now, you recognize your life in this. You can see that right now you are going through a time of persecution and suffering because of following Jesus or because that will happen. When it comes, here's two encouragements. Number one, it is God's will for you. It is God's will for you. And I don't say that lightly, but look at verse 17 again. It is better to suffer for doing good. He could have just stopped there. He could have said it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. But Peter added a clause. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. In other words, it's unusual. It may happen. If it does happen... It's because it was God's will. Not because God caused it. God is not the cause of evil. But if God allows it. And sometimes God allows His people to go through persecution for the sake of Jesus. 
I say this sometimes when we're talking about the sovereignty of God, which is what I believe this is. That I think sometimes the reason people run from the sovereignty of God is because it's hard to grasp. Sometimes we have this feeling that we need to let God off the hook for something. We need to find a way to excuse God. God's not in control because if God's in control, then I have to agree that God's allowed a lot of stuff to happen that I don't understand. The reality is God didn't ask us to let him off the hook for those things. God didn't ask us to make those excuses. He asked us to trust him. Even when we don't understand. That he loves us so deeply. That he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And if he did not withhold his son, will he really withhold anything that's good? The podcast that we we have a Bible teaching podcast we do every week. And the one this week, episode 71, was entitled, Why God? Like, not why God, but why God? Sometimes that's the question we ask. Why? I want to point you to what I always try to point you to, that God's sovereignty is meant to be a comfort, not a confusion. It's meant to comfort us. Look again at verse 12 from last week. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. God has not abandoned you. In the midst of suffering for the sake of righteousness. He's not abandoned you. And if he allowed it, it was for a purpose. We may not know what that purpose is. But we can look to Jesus. It was God's will for Jesus to suffer for doing good. The most holy man who ever lived... The only sinless man who ever lived was murdered as a criminal on a cross. And that was a sin. Which is why Jesus asked them to be forgiven. But it is clear in the Bible that God planned it. It was His will that Jesus would suffer. Why? The purpose was God's glory, our good, and ultimately that Christ would be exalted. Sometimes we don't have the answers to why is this persecution happening and why is God allowing it. But we can look to Jesus that we, when we are persecuted for doing good, God will be glorified in our lives. Other people will benefit by what they see and hear in us. And God will reward us. We will be blessed. And that is the second encouragement that we have When we are suffering for doing good, it will result in a peculiar blessing. In a peculiar blessing. I use that term peculiar blessing to indicate a very particular blessing. I think when God allows us to go through some type of persecution for doing good, that he brings to us a very special, particular, peculiar blessing that we would not have received otherwise. The most natural reading of verse 14 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. The most natural reading of that is that the blessing will occur with the persecution. That as you are being persecuted, you're also being blessed. Nearness to God, who promises to be with the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Identification with Jesus. That we're being like Him. And we can look to Him. And just as Jesus' persecution brought many to know God, sometimes we will have the honor of seeing our persecution for doing good bringing other people to know Jesus. And that's where Peter goes in the rest of these instructions. Two encouragements, and now two commands. Two commands to those who are suffering for doing good. The first command is, don't respond to your persecutors out of fear or distress. Don't respond to the people who are persecuting you out of fear or distress. It's what he says in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now here's the command, have no fear of them nor be troubled. The first part of that is pretty clear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of who's persecuting you. Don't be afraid of them. And secondly, don't be troubled. That word could best be interpreted as don't be shaken up. Don't be distressed. Don't be disturbed. It would imply Emotional turmoil. Sometimes when you're persecuted for doing good, you will be tempted to be afraid, fearful. Other times, you're just going to be emotionally distraught. It's going to shake you to your core. You may be depressed, sad, confused, angry. I don't know what to do. And if you give in to those things... If you give in to the fear, if you give in to the distress, there's two likely outcomes. The first one is capitulation. In other words, you might surrender. You might cease to resist. You're so afraid you give in. Or you're so afraid you give up. You're so troubled that you just say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what they say. I know it's against God's word. I, I know I'm being persecuted for this, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna move away from it because I'm so scared or I'm so distraught. I don't know what to do. I'm just gonna give in and I'm gonna give up. And if it's not capitulation, it might be retaliation. If they do this to me, This is what I'm going to do to them. I'm so angry. I'm so angry that they're persecuting me and I haven't done anything except try to be righteous to them. I haven't done anything except try to live for God. You know what? I'm going to give them exactly what they're giving me. Neither one of these things are the way of Jesus. He didn't give up. He didn't give in. And he didn't retaliate. 
How? How do we do that? I never like it when someone's teaching the Bible and they just say, don't be afraid. Like, okay, cool. I want. Awesome. Let me just go home and flip that switch. I won't be scared anymore. There's always the next question. Sounds good. I want. Tell me how to do that. How do I not be afraid? How do I not be distressed? And I think Peter shows us. War, in your outline, war against distress by the means of hope. War against fear by the means of hope, which is produced in your life by meditation on Jesus. War against distress by means of hope, which is produced by meditation on Jesus. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but... That word but means instead. This is what you do instead of that. Don't be afraid. Here's what you do. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. For the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you is the opposite of the fear that is in you. The hope that is in you is what wars against the distress that might be in you when you're being persecuted for doing good. How do you get that hope? I think it comes from this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's where hope comes from. The word the ESV chooses to interpret as honor. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Underline that sentence in your Bible or write it down because I think that's the key for us in producing hope. That word honor in many other English translations is actually sanctify. Sanctify Christ in your hearts as holy. I think that might be a little confusing to us. Maybe that's why the ESV and some other translations move away from that. Because when Christ sanctifies us, we're made holy. So what does it mean for us to sanctify Christ in our hearts? Because we're not making Him holy And I actually think what it means is, in your hearts, set apart Jesus as Lord. He is Lord, not this person who's persecuting me. He is in control, not this person that's persecuting me. He is over all things, not this person. He dictates my life, not this circumstance. He will determine the outcome of this situation, not them. He is Lord. He is God. He is where I get my identity, not them. I am not what they say about me. I am who He says I am. They may slander me to others, but He knows the truth, and He's God. And no one can convince Him of something that is not true, because He knows my heart. When you think that way, you're setting apart Christ as holy and you have hope. I don't have to be afraid of them. I don't have to be distressed. I might lose my job. He's my provider. I might lose my family or my friends. He will be with me and he will give me community. 
Nothing will be taken from me that he won't restore. Hope battles fear and distress. And hope comes from us focusing on Jesus and sanctifying him in our hearts. Believing that he is Christ. Believing he is Lord. Church, I hope we can remember. I desire for us to remember Hope comes from meditation on Jesus. When I say meditation on Jesus in this outline, I mean meditating on Him in His Word and in prayer and in worship. And I want you to think about that when you're hopeless. I want you to think about that when you're afraid. I want you to think about that when you're distressed and you're confused. I need hope. How do I get it? I need to meditate on Jesus. This takes serious work of pursuit. If we just pursue Jesus a little, we're going to have a little hope. If you want a lot of hope, if you want a lot of faith, pursue Christ with a seriousness. We all have responsibilities. We all have things that we love. We have things we have to do. We have things we want to do. Church, don't let there be anything in your life that you pursue more than you do Jesus. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for me. Every day, I consider myself to be a very busy person. Doesn't matter. I don't want to live a hopeless, helpless life. The serious work of the pursuit of Jesus. So we can have hope that counters distress. We have to cultivate times with Him. Praying. Reading His Word. Letting Him talk to us. Letting Him meet with us. Praising Him, singing to Him. We need that. And then the second command. One command is, don't fear them or be in distress. The second command is, long for your enemies to be saved. At this point we can say, can we go back to that first one? That one seemed easier. <laughs> long for your enemies to be saved. He says in verse 15, so you can see where I'm getting this from. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared or always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So here's what I think Peter's saying. Try to follow this line of thinking. If you have this hope in the midst of persecution that we just talked about, it will produce in you very visible actions and words that are recognized by other people in your life and intrigue them. You're not going to have to go around and, and talk about it. And this is not this is not us saying don't share the gospel. But I'm saying in the midst of persecution where you're pursuing hope, that hope's going to do something in you and people around you are going to take note. They're going to see it. It may be observers to what's happening who are lost. It may be coworkers who see you lose that job and they see how you respond. Maybe other people in your family that see how you respond when you're slandered. 
or lose your friends. It may also be the very ones who are persecuting you. It may be the very ones who are coming after you. And they're going to see something in you. And some of them, some of them are going to ask you about it. And some of them are going to start a conversation with you about it. And some of them are going to be saved because of it. Would it not be a glorious thing to see the very ones who are persecuting us because of our faith turn to that faith and be saved? Remember when Jesus died on the cross? There was a thief next to him who saw everything that was going on. And when another when another thief said, you know, who are you? Save us. Save yourself. That thief took up for him and said, don't you know who this is? We don't know how that happened. Except somehow he'd observed Jesus, maybe in that moment. And he believed. There's someone else who may have been saved, a second person. Mark tells us that when it was all over and Jesus had given up his last breath, there was a centurion, a Roman, maybe one of the ones that had nailed him to the cross, who said, surely this was the Son of God. He may have been saved by what he saw Jesus do. You will have chances to witness unexpectedly to people when you're being persecuted for doing good. So be ready. And I think the implication is, don't just be ready, like have all your notes in place. Be ready in your heart. Hope that that happens. Pray that that happens. Ask God to let that happen. Was that Roman soldier not a product of Jesus asking God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? Was the Apostle Paul not a product of Stephen asking God, forgive them because they don't know what they do when Paul stood there approving of his murder? And this is further driven home by the instructions. Don't just be ready, but be ready with gentleness and respect. We might want to share the gospel with them, but we might want to do it with a little arrogance. I told you! And you weren't listening. I'm glad you now see it my way. Peter says, do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Don't be angry. Don't be arrogant. Have a proper attitude toward them. And I would say it this way in your outline. Let the character of your appeal match the character of God's message. Let the character of your appeal match the character of God's message. The gospel is a message of God's unconditional love towards sinners. The gospel is a message of God's kindness and His compassion toward those who are His enemies. The gospel is a message of the sacrificial love of Jesus to bring people to God. Our appeal should match that. It doesn't make much sense to tell people how kind God has been with an angry and scornful and judgmental tone. Our appeal should match the message. And church, I think your willingness to suffer wrongly, to be patient when you're suffering wrongly, 
to not retaliate, to not give in, that may be the means by which some are saved. Peter says, be ready to give that reason for that hope that's in you. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And I think the type of shame he has in mind there is the type of shame that would lead them to Jesus. So let me make a gospel plea to you to end today. A little application. First of all, thinking about some suffering comes from sinful acts, would we make it our practice to confess and repent of your sin? Confess and repent of your sin. When you daily confess and repent of your sin, you are pleading with God with ongoing for ongoing mercy. You are pleading with God. I, I, I mean, I do this all, all the time. I try in my prayers like, God, help me with this. I don't want this to cause harm. I don't want to harm you. I don't want to harm others. I don't want to harm my family. Help me. Cultivate that as a lifestyle. Confession and repentance. And be in community. Be in relationships with people where you can share transparently what you're struggling with and get prayer and help. And they can do the same. That's one gospel plea. The second is thinking about sometimes we suffer for godly acts. So church, endure persecution in reliance to Jesus with hope and compassion. Endure persecution in reliance to Jesus with hope and compassion. Yes, endure. Be patient when you're being persecuted for doing what is right. But don't just endure it to try to get through it. See your opponents or those around you and hope that they will come to know Jesus. Have compassion on them. I want to ask our prayer partners and the worship team if they would come up. And as they're doing that, would you guys look at verse 18 that we're going to look at next week with a little preview. You can bring the lights down. Look at what it says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Church, how honorable would it be if we could identify with Jesus, being willing, if He calls us to, to suffer wrongdoing that we might bring some to God. That for that person in your life that is opposing you and persecuting you because you're trying to live your faith, that you might could not be afraid of them, pray for them, and trust that God might use you to bring them to know Jesus. Nick, would you join Eric? This morning... We're going to go back into worship. This is not just the close out few minutes. We want to respond to God's Word. All throughout Scripture, when God's Word is shared, read, preached, people respond. So I ask you this morning, would you respond 
in your hearts to what God has said to you today. If you have never come to know Jesus, if you're merely religious, but if you've never really confessed Christ, He brought you here today, I believe, to hear this message and to know you don't have to suffer harm because of your sin. In just a moment, I'm going to be standing right there singing. If you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus, if you want to talk about the confusion you have about that, if you want to talk about what it means to be saved or to come back to Him, I would love to talk with you. Just come stand next to me. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to introduce you to anybody. We'll just talk and we'll probably continue the conversation later this week. Or even today. There's some people here who are willing to pray for you. Anything that you have on your heart. Maybe it's that you're being persecuted. Maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe you're struggling with those in your life that you feel are coming at you for the sake of righteousness. And you just need somebody to stand in the gap with you and pray with you. That's what they're there for. So come and be prayed for. Let them battle with you in that. Or anything else. Maybe you need to be healed this morning. Maybe you need, you want to cry out to God for physical healing or healing in your marriage or whatever it may be. Come and ask for prayer. If you're not being prayed for, if you're not praying, sing out. Worship God. Do anything during this time except just let your mind wander. Let's respond to Him. If you are willing and able to stand, please do so. Father, I ask you this morning that you would help us to respond to your word appropriately. God, help us to confess our known sin. And help us today to cultivate a lifestyle of confession and repentance. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, would you please cause them now to be saved? Cut them to the heart And let them turn to Jesus and ask for his salvation, believing that he will forgive them of their sins. God, if there's anyone here who is struggling with a besetting sin that they're suffering from, if there's anyone here today, God, who is struggling with being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, if there's anyone here today, God, who is struggling to give up or to give in to fear in the midst of that persecution or to to retaliate out of vengeance would you help them today god we can't do it on our own we need you would you please bless us father and help us would you please continue to move your spirit among us and give us miracles this morning in your name we ask these things god You can do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Please, God, help us. In your name we ask. Amen.